Am I sure I want to start streaming the live event by Zeus? I am, in fact, sure that I want to start streaming the live event. How are you guys doing? Nice to chat with you this delightful evening. It is uh, Stefan Molyneux, of course, from Free Domain. I will uh, do and ask me anything. Listen, just ahead of time, uh, I'm going to tell you guys straight up that uh, it's going to be a little bit of a rant. And uh, yeah, I know I'm going head to head with the Trump rally, but I just was bubbling over and I just wanted to chat with you all tonight, get your questions and your comments. And I want to talk to you tonight. And it's not going to be a quiet chat, just so <laughs> just so you know, it is not going to be a quiet chat. But I wanted to talk to you about the little thing they call the wall. Now, I know, I know, I know. The wall generally refers to women hitting the sound barrier of 30 and uh, the cracks that form in the visage of female youth and fertility. I'm talking about a different kind of wall, a wall of human ownership, a fiery wall of control and compulsion. Because, you know, I got to tell you, as I get older, and dare I say at this point is 53, as I get older and older, I find that life gets a little repetitive. News gets a little repetitive. Human patterns of behavior get a little repetitive. Oh, before I forget, like, subscribe, share. Please don't forget to check out my documentary, Hong Kong, Fight for Freedom, exclamation mark. You need to search for it on YouTube with my name, Molyneux. You can also find it at fdrurl.com forward slash Hong Kong. You can also go to freedomainradio.com forward slash documentaries, and you can see I can't really believe I've done this just year, a little bit over a year. I've done three documentaries, and I've done 250 shows and traveled around, given speeches as best as I can. It's been a busy time, and I hope that you guys are pleased with it. And please don't forget to go to freedomain.com forward slash donate to help out the show. That's freedomain.com forward slash donate to, uh, to help out the show. Very, very important these days. Quite a challenge on the old internet tubes these days. So please, please help me out as far as that goes. That would be excellent. Now. I want to talk to you about the wall, and I will just, just a couple of minutes rant, I promise you, then I'll get right to your questions, but this has uh, just, just, just come out, this is from the Daily Mail. Surveillance video of Jeffrey Epstein's first suicide attempt goes missing from Manhattan jail where he was found <coughs> dead. Surveillance video of Jeffrey Epstein's suicide attempt in jail has vanished, prosecutors revealed Wednesday. They could not locate the footage from outside Epstein's cell at Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York City from his suicide attempt on July 23rd, right? That was the first flyby, missed my neck by that much. Authorities have no explanation for how or why the footage went missing. In that attempt, Epstein was found with neck injuries and accused his cellmate, Nick Tartaglioni, of attacking him. Tartaglioni requested that jail footage be preserved as evidence be preserved as evidence. Surveillance video of Jeffrey Epstein's suicide attempt in jail has vanished. It was revealed Wednesday as the mystery into the millionaire pedophile's death deepens. In court on Wednesday, prosecutors revealed that they could not locate the footage from outside Epstein's cell at Metropolitan Correctional Center in New York City. 
when he attempted to take his own life, maybe, on July 23rd. Quote, I don't know the details of how it was lost or destroyed or why it wasn't retained when it should have been, lawyer Bruce Barkett said in court. In that attempt, Epstein was found with neck injuries after he apparently tried to hang himself and was moved to suicide watch of the prison. Two weeks later, of course, as we know, Epstein succeeded in killing himself in his cell on August 10th. Boy, August, September, October, November, December. Five months, baby. Amazing. Authorities have no explanation as to how or why the footage from July 23rd attempt went missing. They said they simply could not find it, according to TMZ. A judge told prosecutors to look further as to how the footage disappeared. So Epstein's cellmate at the time, Nick Tartaglioni, who was an Iwan pastor, who was awaiting trial for four counts of murder, had formally requested that video be preserved two days after the suicide attempt as evidence. Tartaglioni, a former cop, was accused of attacking Epstein the night of July 23rd. But he claimed he had tried to save Epstein from his suicide attempt. We want to be sure that all the evidence is preserved to show that Nick behaved appropriately and even admirably that evening. Barquette, that's the lawyer, said in court as per, as per the New York Post. We asked for all the video and photographic evidence to be preserved, specifically the, this surveillance video. Now it's gone. Barquette noted that Tartaglioni has still not been questioned about Epstein's suicide. Epstein was ultimately found dead on August 10th. His death has been called an apparent suicide, but no formal determination has been made. The circumstances of his death are now under investigation by the Justice Department. So don't worry, everyone. The Justice Department is on the case and they're going to sort it all out. They're just going to sort it all out. Two prison guards on duty the night Epstein died are accused of falsifying records in which they lied about making required checks on the financier when in reality they hadn't, leaving Epstein alone in his cell for eight hours before he was found dead. Those guards have pleaded not guilty. At the time of his death, of course, Epstein was awaiting trial for sex trafficking underage girls. Following Epstein's shocking death, the prison has come under fire for neglect in checking in on the financier behind bars. In light of the controversy, the Council of Prison Locals E.O. Young stated that prisons, quote, can't ever stop anyone who is persistent on killing themselves. So, let me just have my wee rant and we will get to your questions and comments. So, some time ago, I was at a pool with my daughter. And my daughter was chatting with a girl and playing with a girl, and I was chatting with the girl's mom. This was summertime. And the girl's mom was a teacher. And she was talking, you see, about how wonderful being a teacher was. Job security, good pay, fabulous benefits. Can't be fired. I know it's a synonym for job security, but it's a perk so nice I had to name it twice. And, oh, the summer's off. Lazing around, she got to work out. Spend her days at the pool. It was glorious. And she sat there like an overfed, pampered cat, sitting on the lap of the Bond villain known as State Power, gloriously luxuriating in all of the money and security and privileges and time off that she had. This is how little things change when the government erects its fiery wall around particular people and keeps them 
as tax-fed, pampered cats hanging off the jugular of the more productive. And, of course, she said, well, my husband, he really appreciates, he really appreciates the fact that when our children are off for the summer, I'm also off for the summer, and so I can just take care of them. I'm, it's so helpful. She's, you can see her sexual market value. For teachers, sexual market value goes through the roof because when your kids are off for two months plus in the summer, they're also off for two months plus in the summer, so you don't have to find ways to stuff them into summer camps or relatives' places or wherever. Pampered cats. I only worked once anywhere close to the government. And I worked for an educational board as a temp. Early on, uh, after I graduated from my undergraduate and before I did my graduate degree, and <laughs> I remember going for lunch with my boss. And, oh, man. Boy, we had a long lunch. <laughs> we really had a long lunch and a very nice lunch. So oh, we're expensing it. And I'm, you know, because I'm, I got to tell you, I, I do wrestle. I look back three documentaries, traveled for speeches, 250 shows. I just, I wonder if I'm just a little bit of a workaholic from time to time. In fact, I don't really wonder it. Friends, I think I'm a little bit of a workaholic, but, you know, it feels like, the mudslide is coming down the hill. The biker philosophy needs to get up the hill. So forgive me for pumping my legs just a little bit. But I've always been kind of like, well, then we have to, don't we have to get back to work? Shouldn't we really get to work? Should we get to work? Because I'm always like ka-ching, ka-ching getting paid now because I've only this, this one time, and I was a temp, so I could have been fired like that. I really didn't have any of the government privileges. I've never had a government job as far as that goes. So I'm always like, it's called eat what you kill when I was a waiter got paid very little hourly and I would walk around back in the days before people had credit cards like some medieval knight with ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching with these giant Pizza Hut <laughs> chainmail armor of coins around when people used to tip that way. And if you didn't show up to work, you didn't get paid. And if you didn't do a good job, you didn't get paid. That's kind of how I'm used to working. My very first job was painting these plaques for the Queen's Silver Jubilee in the 70s. And you got paid piece work, right? You got paid piece work. If you made one, you painted one correctly and they liked it, then you got paid. And if you didn't, then you didn't, right? That's that's the way I've always worked. When I had a, a paper route, if you didn't deliver the papers, you couldn't collect the money. It was always consequences, consequences, consequences. Always for me. So I remember being at lunch with this guy, like, you know, shouldn't we, shouldn't we maybe get back to work? It was a, it was a big, complicated union contract that I was in charge of the documents and I was in charge of edits and changes and version control and making sure everything was accurate. Some fairly light editing because I'd had half an English degree and so on. And I remember saying, you know, don't, don't we have to get back to the office? And he's like, why? Nothing's going to fall apart if we don't. It was just a very, <laughs> a very relaxing environment. And I remember I, I was the only guy in a room full of, Women, I don't know what they did. Actually, I do know what they did. I don't know what they did for money. I don't know what they did for their job, but I do know what they did, which is they, they seemed to chat quite a lot about their husbands. I remember one woman, her husband was quitting smoking, and she was like, oh, I've been nagging at him to quit smoking for years. Now he's finally quit smoking. 
And he's such a bear. Last night, I went out. I bought cigarettes for him. I'm literally on my knees saying, please, you don't have to start again, but just smoke one cigarette. You're such a grouch when you don't smoke. And then all the women are laughing. And then they went to lunch. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, man. I'm telling you. It's a pretty sweet gig if you have the work habits of your average narcoleptic sloth and the conscience of an economic serial killer. It's a pretty sweet gig. And the number of times I've talked to people, professors and so on, who were like, oh, it's glorious. I get paid a fortune. For a couple of hours, work a week. (laughs) I can't be fired. I reuse a lot of my course materials. Oh, and if I write a book and I assign it to my own students, ka-ching! Glorious. So think of all the things that are annoying you at the moment. What's going on with the FBI? What's going on with the Department of Justice? What's going on with the Epstein case and so on? They don't have to please you. They don't have to satisfy you because they get your money anyway. They get your money anyway. So why on earth would they bother trying to make your life better, trying to figure out how to serve you better? Why would they bother? They get your money anyway. Boris Johnson's thinking of uh, finding some way to not enforce the payment of the license fee to the BBC. The British Broadcasting Corporation, what? And they don't have to serve you. They can serve whatever political agenda they want. What is all this ideology coming from? Where is all of this destructiveness coming from, this violence, this propaganda. Where is it coming from? It's coming from the fact that they get your money anyway. Why can the BBC dabble in all of this crazy postmodernist, structuralist, multicultural propaganda? Because they get your money. They don't, have to, they don't have to please you. They don't have to serve you. Think of all of these Democrats, Pelosi, Schumer, you name it, all complaining about the government. Well, these guys have been in power for as long as Methuselah has had toe fungus And they're still complaining about the government and that it's just not working right and it's just not doing things right. And it's funny. So when when the prison loses this footage, so what? Who's going to be held accountable? No one. No one. Because you've got no alternative. They don't go out of business. They're on the other side of this wall. They're on the handle end, not the business end of the sword of state power. They don't care if you like them. They don't care if they do a good job because there's no competition. They're going to get the money anyway and they have the power no matter what. In life... One of the most powerful and amazing things is uncertainty. I remember back in the day when I first started doing the show. Oh, how's it going to turn out? What's going to happen? How's it going to play out? 
Not knowing, not knowing, not knowing. I remember reading a book. Oh, man, this is way back in the day called Chicken Soup for the Mother's Soul. I know, I know. I read this book and in it, there's a woman who decided to get remarried to her husband after 40 years of marriage. They just rededicated themselves in the ceremony. And she, she, she turned around and she said to him just before they got remarried, she said, I wish I hadn't worried so much now that I know it's all worked out so well or it's all worked out so wonderfully. And so, you know, we, we get this hindsight, we get this benefit of hindsight after we have our concerns and our worries and our fears and so on. And we say, wow, you know, it really, really worked out. But here's the thing. If she'd been able to go forward in time and know how things have worked out, she wouldn't have made the same decisions to have them work out that well. I mean, imagine if you, if you were to start a business and you knew for sure it was going to make you a fortune and you knew for sure you couldn't get fired, would you work as hard to build that business? Of course not. Of course you wouldn't. Not knowing is quality. The fog of the future, the ignorance of tomorrow, not knowing what is going on down the path, around the, around the corner, over the hill of the moment. That's where quality comes from. Now, you guys could all fire me tomorrow. You know, we got a lot of people tuning in to listen. Thank you very much and welcome. You guys could completely give up on me tomorrow. The next time I do something you just don't like, which I choose not to explain for particular reasons, of virtue, but I don't know. I don't know if you're going to like me tomorrow. I don't know. I mean, I, I follow my own conscience. I, I'm in a dance with you, the audience, with virtue, with my own conscience, and what is, what is possible to talk about. But you could all fire me tomorrow, and it is that very uncertainty that has me continue to do shows, right? So for those of you who are subscribed to me on Subscribestar, oh, and by the way, if you want to do one-time donations, Subscribestar will support that. Subscribestar.com forward slash free domain radio. Sorry, <laughs> Subscribestar.com forward slash free domain. Uh, I just, uh, I haven't been doing much long-form political theory content lately, so I did an introduction to socialism, which you can get if you're subscribed on Subscribestar. You get that now. I'm not sure when I'll put it out on the regular show. But you can you get a lot of previews over there. But yeah, you guys could all fire me tomorrow. And that uncertainty, that need to be in the dance with you, is what I think keeps the quality of the show high. And if I knew for sure, oh, the money's going to roll in and everyone's going to love me and it's perfect, <laughs> you know, I mean, it would, it would change what I do. But that's the government. There's no fog of uncertainty down the road. You're going to get paid. No matter what, you can't be fired almost no matter what. You know, these infamous New York City public school rubber rooms where teachers accused of the most egregious acts against children just sit there, get paid, thumb through magazines and play Candy Crush and collect all the money. There's no uncertainty. There's no uncertainty. James Comey was asked, oh, the visa abuses. They happened under your watch. Is that bad? He's like, well, not as bad as some of the stuff that happened under my watch. It's like, what does that mean? Nobody knows. And nobody's ever going to know. Nobody's ever going to know. Judicial Watch just found 30 more Hillary Clinton emails. Of course, they don't get any details about them, but just, yeah, she's just there. 
Strip the classified headers and send it through the fax unsecured. <laughs> One guy takes a selfie in a submarine and he's toast. But if Comey doesn't do a good job, if the DOJ doesn't prosecute Hillary, do you sit there and say, well, I'm sorry, you guys suck. I'm going to need people who actually enforce the law. You know, I'm not paying for you anymore. It's a monopoly of force. Now, of course, Donald Trump could declassify all of these emails with a signature, but he doesn't. Maybe it's some big QLA strategy that he's going to declassify Hillary Clinton's emails right before the 2020 election. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see together. Assuming your support maintains itself, and I hope that it will, and I thank you for your support so far. But they're on the other side. They're on the other side of that fiery wall of state power. Their future is certain. Their security is absolute. Their benefits are unquestioned. They don't have to be nice. They don't have to be productive. They can be as indulged in as many political pettinesses and ideological syllable aside as they want to. They get your money anyway. This, it's hard out here in the interstellar depths of dancing on the edge of the Overton window of what you can talk about. It's a challenging situation. I feel like I'm doing like one of those dances in the, in the old-timey Western movies where the villain with the little mustache, the villain shoots at the foot. Joe Pesci style, he shoots at the foot. The dance, pilgrim dance. And I'm, I'm dancing away, trying to not lose a heel or a toe or a foot or something, right? It's hard out here. Just high enough that you get an incredible view, not so high that you run out of oxygen, pass out, and fall Icarus style into nothingness. And yet that's where the quality is. That's where the passion is, is not knowing. If I knew, wouldn't be very good. Wouldn't be very good. So the Epstein jail, yeah, you know, there, there, was, a, there was an order or a request to preserve the evidence for Epstein's cellmate. The evidence wasn't preserved. It's gone. You try that. You try getting an order to preserve evidence and then just, oops. <laughs> See what happens. It's a different planet. It's a different planet on the other side of that wall. I don't know how many of you guys are on the other side of that wall. I don't imagine too many. But my gosh. Is it ever a different planet on that side of the wall? And there are times where I get it. You know, it's, it's, um, it's tempting. It's tempting to want to be on the other side of that wall. But uh, I like it out here. I like it out here with you, my brothers and sisters out here, in between the stars where we are stoned, immaculate, and honest. All right. Thank you so much for your patience. I will get to your questions. 
Stefan, I'm 24 years old and I had my freedom taken away when I was 18 via a guardianship. I don't have any college, so is it too late to start life? Gosh, no, 24. <laughs> You're talking to the wrong guy. You understand that. That is uh, 29 years prior to me. So 24 years old. Listen, I didn't start my first serious job until I was 27 or 28. I didn't start my first company until I was in my late 20s. And I didn't start Free Domain Radio. Well, I only started it 15 uh, years ago, right? So 20 years ago, we're 30. Uh, 33, 23. So yeah, it was uh, quite a while ago. So no, it is absolutely not too late to start life. And for God's sakes, don't let a lack of college stop you. The smarter employers out there, and I would absolutely be doing this if I were out there in the hiring market right now, the smartest employees, sorry, the smartest employers out there are the ones who are saying, ooh, college, unless it's something very specific that you need for your degree, like engineering or something like that, they're going to say, college, my gosh. And I did this when I was a manager, too, because it felt weird to say, well, you've got to have a computer science degree. When I, as the chief technical officer who wrote the core code that sold for millions of dollars, I didn't have a college degree in computer science. I just loved computers from when I was 11 and went in every weekend and rented them, sorry, and brought them home when I could so that I could learn to program even better. So, no, it's not too late to start in life. Just find what you're passionate at. And just honor that passion by going out and making people aware of it, of the quality of what you can bring. All right. <laughs> uh, let's see here. Uh, I'm never going to get Taylor Swift pregnant on exogenous DMT, Steph. I need your help. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see here. What have we got here for questions? Trump officially impeached. Well, um, it's not going to pass the Senate, and it's all a bunch of nonsense, right? There was a tweet out there today about what it takes to get impeached. What does it take to get impeached? What if you start economic programs that cause billions and billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars, to be lost in a tech market stock crash? What if the Fed gets things wrong? And wipes out 40% of America's wealth through a housing bubble and a housing crash. What if it turns out there's really not as much gold as they thought in Fort Knox? What if you double the deficit? What if you drop 100,000 bombs in the Middle East without too many, without an oversupply of declared wars? What if you start a war in Iraq based on false pretenses and premises? What if you use helicopters to wastefully fly water out to troops in Afghanistan where it sits in a pallet in the hot sun, half melting under the plastic, and how many health problems do they then get from quaffing away at those highly compromised water bottles? What if you use particular weapons, say in Fallujah, that cause the virtual genetic destruction of the entire population? What if you get into a war in Vietnam and then micromanage every conceivable detail to the point where people are just getting slaughtered needlessly on the American side? What if you believe there are weapons of mass destruction and launch a war that kills hundreds of thousands of people? Oops, no weapons of mass destruction. What does it take to get impeached? <laughs> well, it takes Donald Trump calling up and saying, hey, I'll help you look into corruption because, you know, we've got a treaty that says we can help each other with investigations. Be great if you looked into corruption. 
that leads to a company that leads to Hunter Biden that leads to Joe Biden. When Joe Biden is on record, on video, saying, you got to get rid of this guy who's investigating my son, or you ain't getting that sweet, sweet government bailout money. Son of a gun, don't you know? They got rid of the guy and they got the money. Total on video bragging quid pro quo. But now they're just making up the, oh, these phone calls, there was a quid pro quo because there was a slight delay in the money that then ended going anyway. <laughs> my gosh. You've got to watch my video, The Terrible Truth About Barack Obama's Presidency, and then tell me what is impeachable and what is not. What is impeachable and what is not. It's not any moral principle that's behind the impeachment hysteria. I guess everyone had a microsecond of relief when the Russia collusion conspiracy theory died a painful death under the Mueller report. And then, of course, it's like, okay, well, that didn't work. Plan B. Next thing. What do we get? One day off? Like, what do we get? One day off after the end of the Cold War before the beginning of the War on Terror? It's actually the War on Terror, T-E-R-R-A, the entire Earth. And ever since the war on terror, terrorism has exponentially multiplied. Exponentially multiplied. So the reason why the impeachment is going on, they don't have anyone who can win in 2020. They don't. Come on. They don't. They don't have anyone who can win in 2020. Now, of course, what they're doing is they're hanging on to all of this stuff. They're hoping to cripple and impeach Trump because what they need is for the massive demographic shift of mass immigration to continue to the point where no Republican, even the rhinos, will get elected and the Republicanism will be like some weird appendix in the body of the American political system that you simply hope doesn't flare up and cause some monstrous medical problem. But no, they, they need, they're desperate for Trump well, of course, they'd like it for him to not win in 2020. The left would like for Trump not to win. The fact that he's interrupting their progressive agenda and that he's talked a tough talk about immigration and mass migration and refugees and so on. The fact that he talked a tough talk about that but not implemented it. They're very concerned, of course, that the second term, I mean, if you just look at the Machiavellian real politic of the situation, the second term of Trump would be where he focuses on immigration to the point of just, to the exclusion of just about everything else. You just focus on immigration, which is, of course, what he should have been doing. But if he focuses on immigration, then it slows down the inevitable demographic change required for the Democrats to seize and hold power in America forever. Forever. And so, of course, they're trying to prevent that from happening. This is all a bunch of... This is why I haven't... I keep thinking about, oh, I should do my show. I should do my show on impeachment. But it's all such theater to design distract everyone, designed to distract everyone from immigration, mass migration, demographic change. That's it. I mean, you can read Ann Coulter, you can read Michelle Malkin's book. I mean, that that's it. That's all that matters. And so the impeachment is I mean, everyone's boring and uh, bored by it, and they don't really um believe any of it. It's all just a bunch of theatrical nonsense. All right, let's see here. Steph, do you believe Epstein is in fact dead? If so, what piece of evidence convinces you the government and MSM 
are telling the truth about him being dead. Yeah, I think I think he's dead because I do think that um, trying to fake that kind of stuff would be pretty hard. Pretty hard. I'm, I think he's dead. And I mean, I talked about it with um, oof, our good friend, the doctor. I did the show on on Epstein with and so on. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I think he's dead. I think he's dead. All right, let's see here. What have we got here? Shall I pretend? Let's see here. Has anyone watched Mel Gibson on Joe Rogan's show? Fascinating stuff. It's a shame that Steph hasn't introduced his audience to the topic. I don't know how to convince him. I have not watched Mel Gibson on the Joe Rogan show. As you can imagine, I have not exactly. Uh, I have not exactly been following Joe Rogan's show for, for quite some time. So let's see here. Stefan, what is the closest you have come to death? That is a very interesting question. Okay. Um, well, I mean, there was there was cancer that that could have got me pretty close to death. Uh, turned out to be a bit of a drive-by, but um, I remember a couple of times I've been close to death. So let's see. I was uh, biking on a high uh, on a sort of main thoroughfare in Canada, and it was my complete fault. I just did a sudden turn because I realized I'd missed my exit, and I cut in front of a truck. Fortunately, the truck driver. I was going to a second-hand clothing store because I needed to get clothes, and the truck driver had very fast reflexes and stopped right in front of me. That was very, very important and very, very good. When I was working up north, I had a couple of near-death experiences just because, nothing major, but it's just because you're working with heavy machinery in a very remote, remote location, and if you get injured, you're like days away from a hospital, and it's just a giant mess. And I remember a friend of mine I was working with was driving a snowmobile. I was sitting on the back on a sled with a whole bunch of massive, heavy drill pipes, and he was going down a hill, and I was like, mm, you know, this could be bad if he goes. Anyway, so I decided to get off and walk down the hill. He went down. His snowmobile stuck at the bottom of the hill, went into the snow, and all of the, um, all of the big drill rods went flying off the back of the snowmobile and went sort of spearing past him. If I had been on the back, that would have been pretty bad. Other than that, as far as near-death experiences go... I think those those are the only I mean maybe something else, but that those are the ones that sort of pop uh pop to mind. But let's see here. Let's see here. Can you tell me where we are with the communist takeover? How close? Well, I mean as far I was just talking to a friend of mine who was telling me that in the college departments that he is very familiar with, it's complete it's complete and he's not he's he's in a stem field so he said it's uh, it's complete so it's uh, it's not good it's really not good and if you look at i mean you could just do the searches for me right and you can see how being anti communist you know where where are they well they certainly seem to be uh, uh, quite central to um well, search results and so on, right? So yeah, it is uh, it is pretty close, but we have the internet. We have this conversation, we have the internet. And because of that, I believe that there's hope until they sew my mouth shut, <laughs> so to speak. I think that there is, uh, there is hope. All right, let me see here. To what extent do you support patent protections? Is it a violation of the non-aggression principle to copy someone's intellectual property? 
Now, Jeffrey Tucker has a good chapter on this in a book I read, actually read it as an audiobook called It's a Jetson's World. I am not a big fan of intellectual property as a whole. As a whole. I mean, I can see sometimes in the current system where you might want to enforce it for other reasons, but I do not like intellectual property as a whole. And uh, so, I, you know, if you look at the real flowering of classical music, it happened at a time where there were no copyright protections for music. Therefore, you could take other people's music and you could play with it and you could uh, rewrite it and you could expand it and all that. And it was all pretty cool stuff. And that level of creativity produced a massive explosion of flowering in classical music. As soon as the patent protections went in or the IP protections went in for classical music, it was a huge diminishing in the creativity and one of the reasons i think why there's not been much of a classical movement since then even though of course the word classical means something pretty specific i think one of the reasons that hasn't happened since then is because everyone's afraid of this this copying thing right what was it an old marvin gay song that they said that blurred lines was a copy of there was the sam smith song stay with me that they said was like tom petty's won't back down and I think, I think Sam Smith just kind of gave up the ghost on that one and said, yeah, fine, you can have co-writing credits and I'll share the royalties and all that, even though I've never actually heard that song. So, you know, it's just a big battle. And, of course, the, the big challenge outside of all of that, the big challenge is, like, if you write a song, I, I know the laws are different in various places, but take a sort of typical example. And this was in the movie, was it Love Actually or something like that, where the Hugh Grant character was living on a Christmas song that his dad had wrote, I think, and and it was like 50 years after the artist's death that you could still protect the the copyright, and I guess you can renew stuff as well, which is why nobody sings happy birthday in movies and so on. So, you know, if you write a great song and you make a lot of money and then you can continue, your family can continue to milk that for half a century after your death. That just seems, I don't know, excessive as far as property rights go. Of course, you make the money from the song and you should be able to leave all that money to your kids and all that, but that seems odd to me. Of course, the big danger with copyrights and intellectual property and so on, and patents in particular. So being a patent troll, as they're called, is a big problem in a variety of fields, in particular the software industry. And so what you do is you just patent a whole bunch of stuff. You look for startups and you patent anything to do with those startups and then you charge them a fortune to release those patents uh, to them and to promise not to prosecute them for infringing upon your patents. And so it's claim jumping or claim staking, not for the purpose of homesteading property, but for the purpose of keeping it out of other people's hands. It's kind of like a shakedown. And of course, also, it is a big excuse for takedowns on social media, right? Which is if you, you know, what's fair use and so on, it's complicated, it's challenging. Uh, I know that Mike Cernovich and John Jutoit had to go through a lot to get the movie hoaxed out. You should check out the movie at hoaxedmovie.com because they have to get sign-offs that it's all uh, fair use. And I used to do videos back in the day, Am I, the story of your enslavement, um, The State is Dead Part 3, and a lot of other videos, I would take little clips and so on, right? But it became progressively more risky. I haven't been able to do it because, you know, I mean, apparently I'm somewhat controversial for talking about facts. And so it is such a, a system that is open to abuse. And 
of course, it tends to serve as these things do always, it seems, it tends to serve the powers that be. So big corporations with armies of patent lawyers can work to harass and punish and bully and control. And then you've got the trolls out there crippling innovation with their endless uh, troll threats uh, of patent infringement and so on. So I don't have a lot of respect or positive ideas towards patents and intellectual property and that kind of stuff. I think you can say, okay, well, there's some benefits to it and so on. But given that it's a government program right now, it's just open to the kind of abuse that you see all the time. All right. Let's see here. Who still listens to this racist idiot? Oh, is that me, this racist idiot? Oh, come on, man. The word racism is, is just a word invented by communists to smear their opponents. And I'm not even making this up. You can go look this up directly. They're just making up this word so that they can smear anybody who opposes creeping socialism and communism. So, you know, don't use totalitarian-inspired smear words because, you know, you know, one day, one day, if you, you're out there lying about people and calling them terrible names and so on, you understand who, quote, lives by the sword, quote, dies by the sword, all allegorically, of course, but, um, you know, one day, one day when you're flying high and having a good time and enjoying your life one day, if you amount to anything, if you amount to nothing, no one's going to lie about you because you're not worth it, right? You understand? So the only way you're not going to be lied about is if you're not worth it or you're not doing anything virtuous in your life. But let's suppose, let's suppose you stop the, you stop spewing stupid Marxist insults at people unjustly and unfairly. Let's say you do actually, you know, go out there and damn well do something with your life that isn't shitty. Let's just say, let's go out on a limb here. Let's say you go out there and you do something important and decent in your life. Well, then you know what's going to happen? Assuming that it's important and it's decent, then people will lie about you. And they will make up the most terrible stories about you. And they will smear you with the most terrible terms. And we have as a society drifted so far from justice these days that it only takes the hatred of a small number of people to make the majority of people think that you're bad. So you're going to focus that laser, they're going to focus that laser on you, and they're going to carve all of these terrible words into your forehead. And then you're going to say, well, that's really not very fair. Now is it? It's not just, it's not engaging in the argument, it's not rebutting based on evidence, it's just a shitty little chimpanzee smearing shit on the Mona Lisa smear job. And then you're going to say, oh my gosh, that's what I did. How terrible of me. And you won't have a moral leg to stand on when you complain about it. So don't, don't use Marxist smear words. Don't use any smear words against people. Engage in the arguments. All right. Dear Stefan, what's the flaw with MGTOW, with men going their own way. Listen, I understand the MGTOW guys. I really do. I, I grok the philosophy. I, I get it deep down. It is a John Galt. My, it is a, a withdrawing from society that is unjust based upon the dating game. But um, as far as floor goes, listen, people can do what they want. I just think that living away from love, living away from children, living away from marriage, living away from pair bonding, living away from all of that, withdrawing to monk mode, right? 
I don't know. I don't believe that it fundamentally solves the problems that the MGTOW men create. Oh, sorry, I talk about, right? I mean, Sandman, who's a guy I listen to from time to time, you know, he's, he's, is, he, is he happy? I don't know. He seems to have an endless array of, of physical ailments and, and all of that. I, d- I don't know. But my question is, is society and dating so far gone? And listen, I haven't been in the dating world for like over almost 20 years. So I, I, and I know things have changed. I, I get all of that. People tell me that and I'm right. But there's still good women out there. <laughs> still good women out there. I know because I have friends who are younger who are married to good women. I know that there are good women out there. So if you love God so much that you're willing to become a monk, okay, you've given up on marriage and you've given up on family, but you've gained grace, salvation, a special relationship with God and so on, all of the stuff that monks pursue in their embrace of the holy. But if you give up on marriage and children and love and so on, but it's still available, it's still there, then you're starving yourself to death even in a place where there's not a huge amount of food, but there's enough for you to live. And why would you want to starve yourself to death if there's still food around? So my argument is very simple, which is stop believing that 50% of marriages end in divorce. It's not true. It's not true. People get remarried and you know if some guy has three marriages it's like wow that's really upping the number but that's one guy with three marriages right it's not 50 percent of marriages do not end in divorce if you wait until you're not super young to get married if the woman is educated and that can be self-educated as well and you share values you can get your chances of divorce down to the single digits and the low single digits too three four or five percent i mean look at the amish 2% divorce rate, right? Again, I'm not saying be Amish, but you, you know, if you share your values, if you share those values, if you ask important questions, if you don't get dick-napped and just follow your divining rod penis off a cliff into a chasm of dysfunctional, fiery, acidic, moated vaginas, then you're probably going to be okay. You know, if you say, well, I'm never going to drive because, man, I, I just keep driving with my eyes closed and I keep crashing, it's like, okay, well, maybe you have an option, which is not to never drive. Open your eyes. Open your eyes. So you can. You can find better women and you can find security. So, all right. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Why do Democrats suck? Now, you see, Democrats, I have my criticisms. <laughs> I have my criticisms. And I don't know, of course, there, there are definitely some people in the Democrat side who are, you know, like socialism fundamentally in its practice is not an economic system. It's just an excuse for sadism. I'm sort of quote mining my tweets a little here. But the Democrats, because they lack foundational and essential information about human differences, they, they think that the next law is going to create this equal society because they want equality of outcome. You know, the people who want free markets, we want equality of opportunity. And I recognize that there are some people, and and there are many people, for whom inequality of outcome is kind of inevitable, and it's not their fault. I mean, people who are born with particular kinds of handicaps or disabilities or whatever, it's not their fault. And if their parents didn't buy any insurance or didn't save money or like, 
I want to help those people. I really do. And I do um, quite a bit with regards to charity because, you know, I'm lucky. <laughs> you know, I'm lucky. And, and you're probably lucky too if you're listening to this, right? We're in the first world. We have our health. I hope you have your health. And we have this amazing communication capacity. And there's no war. There's no famine. There's no diseases uh, that are coruscating across society. So, you know, not too bad. But because there is this thirst and desire for equality of outcome, which is kind of fundamentally a female thing. So what do females do, right? In traditionally, how did females evolve? Well, females evolved to handle lots and lots and lots of little kids. Now, I kind of make this joke when my daughter and I split food, like if we're in a cafe or whatever and we're going to split a croissant, like I sort of make a joke and I say, you know, you have to get an atomic weigh scale. You have to get the finest laser. You have to cut it so that the atoms on each side are equal because, you know, what happens if you've got a kid and... You know, you're supposed to split something and you take two-thirds and give her a third. I mean, you're going to hear about that for the next four eons, right? So what do, what do moms do? They look at the little kids and they share. And little kids squalling like piglets trying to get at mama's nipples, they know likey when the sharing is not equal. If you ever want to provoke just a massive explosion among kids, you know, take eight kids, have 10 candy bars, and give, you know, a couple of extra to one kid. Hey, how come he's getting more? That's not fair, right? So children, women have this instinctual dislike of inequality because they evolved to manage and handle little kids. And there was kind of an old tradition. I think it is still the tradition in some Jewish belief systems, which is, if there's a divorce or whatever, women get the kids until they're seven and men get the kids after that, right? And so inequality creates anxiety among women because it's associated with massive Krakatoa-like volcanic eruptions of toddler rage if you hand out things unequally to kids. And listen, I'm, I was a younger sibling. I know all about this. <laughs> now, men, on the other hand, we love inequality. <laughs> we love inequality. Who's going to win? Who's the best? Who's the fastest runner? Who's the best tree climber? Who's the best athlete? We love to win. We love to compete. And of course, there's no winning without inequality. So for toddlers, equal division makes perfect sense and keeps the peace. For adults, for first like late latency, early teenage and up, man, you got to test yourself. Why? Because you got to figure out what you're good at. You got to figure out what you're good at. And... Until you figure out what you're good at, you're just spinning your tires. You're wasting time in life until you figure out what the hell you're good at. And what was I good at? Well, I like writing. I like speaking. I like arguing. I like debating. And I'm really good with computers. So I spent a lot of time in the entrepreneurial world. And now I spend a lot of time arguing, debating, reasoning, and thinking on the internet. I wasn't particularly great at math. Not good at geography. Not I'm good at the theory of science, but I'm not good at science science because of the aforementioned math requirement or, or necessity. So you've got to compete in a wide variety of things to figure out what you're good at and what you're bad at so that you can focus your life energies on harnessing 
and harvesting your strengths while avoiding or delegating your weaknesses. Why I don't do my own taxes, right? So for women, inequality provokes anxiety. For men, equality provokes frustration, anxiety, and boredom, which is why men become particularly unproductive in egalitarian systems like socialism and communism, whereas some women really like that stuff. I talked about this in hoax. There's this article, I think, in the New York Times about how women had great orgasms under socialism because they didn't need to worry about reality. (laughs) So it's not that Democrats just suck, and look, I understand all of that, but it's just a failure to understand that society is not a family. Citizens are not your children. And if you can't handle inequality, then you need to be like nowhere near the marketplace. Nowhere near the marketplace. For men, inequality is aspirational. You see some guy doing really well and you're like, I want to be that guy. I want to be like him. So for men, inequality is great. It's aspirational. For women, inequality generally creates you know, envy, resentment, backstabbing and mean girls, queen bee garbage, right? So if you want equality of outcome, you just end up with a tyranny. If you want equality of opportunity and you can handle the anxiety of wildly different outcomes. You know, like you, you see, I talked about this in, in this video I did today, an introduction to socialism. Like you see some rich guy walking down the street with a briefcase that costs more than most people's first car. And then you see some guy shuffling along with a paper bag over his head, pushing some wobbly-wheeled shopping cart full of his scurvy goods. And you say, well, that's not equal. That's not fair. And it might not be. Maybe the homeless guy was born with a tendency towards schizophrenia, and it's not his fault, and he needs help, and he needs support. And I, I believe that people in the world will do all of that on a voluntary basis. Sorry, my lips are drying out like crazy here. But, or maybe it is fair. Maybe it is fair. Maybe the guy who's walking down with the briefcase has been working 80 hours a week since he was 17. You know, maybe he put himself through night school. Maybe he's deferred a huge amount of gratification. Maybe he is kind of a monk married to his work and he's made a lot of money and that's fine, I guess. And maybe the guy who's homeless decided to take a whole bunch of drugs. And they messed up his brain. Like, sorry, you know, I mean, choices and consequences. Now, I don't know, right? There's the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. The people who, if you give them money, it'll help them out of a hole. Other people, you give them money, then it's like handing $60,000 to Ben Affleck at a gin rummy table, and it's going to be gone like you lighting fire to the biggest cigar in the world. So if you can look at inequality and say... Some people really, really make big mistakes. And I've seen this before. I remember in the apartment I grew up in, in, in Toronto, or half grew up in, I was first was part was in London, England. The apartment that I grew up in, there was a woman there who had two kids, single mom, and she worked, she worked, she worked, and took night school, and it was crazy. And I don't think it was great for her kids and all that, but her sister just partied and was on welfare and, and, you know, took a couple of odd jobs under the table and so on. And, you know, this woman began climbing in her career. She got more stability. She got promotions. She got, you know, company car. And she was really valuable to her 
employer, whereas the other girl, of course, was burning her brain away and drugs and one-night stands and all that. Her sister and her sister was like falling down the rungs of society. And she says, my sister gets so resentful. And I keep telling her, well, change your ways, but she won't. Choices and consequences, so. Yeah, just recognize when you see this this fetish for absolute equality, you just got to think of a mom looking at a bunch of little kids who all want a candy bar. All right, let's see here. What do we have here? Oh, we did the patent protections once. Let's see here. So many people think women are inherently evil. What do you think? <laughs> well, um, no. I don't, I don't, come on. I mean, I'm married, I have a wonderful daughter. She's actually, um, she's created her own language, which she's teaching me. It's really cool and, and a real challenge. I'm great. I know like 16 or 17 different computer languages. And um, I'm really terrible with human languages. I'm really, really not, not good. And, and that's because I compare my sort of fluidity and facility with English and then say, oh my gosh, how long is it going to take for me to get that good in another language? Oh, forget it, right? So... No, of course women are not inherently evil, but um, women have existed historically usually in a state of relative protection insofar as, you know, a woman can go up and slap a man and the man can't hit her back. And if a man does hit a woman and other men find out about it, the the, the man is in big trouble. But a woman can hit a man and it's considered to be quite funny. I remember, what was it, The Bad News Bears? There's a movie I watched once or twice when I was a kid and in it, I think it's just a movie, there's a scene where the woman is being bothered by a boy. The girl is being bothered by a boy. I think they're in their mid-teens. And she turns around and just is about to hoof him straight in the nuts, like really pop the nads out sideways through his butt crack. And then the camera freezes right before she kicks him in the nads and everybody laughed, right? That was funny, right? Whereas you, you know, punch a woman in the breast or, or the vagina and it's considered horrendous, but a woman kicking a man in the nuts when I was a kid at least was considered to be hilarious. Just as you don't make jokes about anyone being raped unless you're making jokes about men being raped in prison, in which case it's hilarious, apparently, for some sociopathic people. So women do live a fairly, I mean, relative to men, it's its less consequential for, for women as a whole. Now, less consequential insofar as the concept of honor largely developed among men because men would beat the crap out of each other for violating uh, honor, right? I mean, if you tell a lie about someone, there used to be this wonderful thing called a duel that kept society pretty damn polite and kept slander and libel, which is a constant problem in the modern world, down to kind of a minimum. You know, go up and slap a guy with the gloves and it's pistols at dawn or swords at dawn and so on, right? Well, it kept, uh, it, it kept people from slandering, <laughs> you know, and again, I'm not saying it's an ideal solution, but it did kind of arise uh, out of a more free market environment and it was the government who put a stop to it. Uh, probably the reporters, so that they could then start slandering and libeling everyone that they could get their pens on. So women have less, have fewer negative consequences in terms of honor and and so on, but they have greater negative consequences in terms of if they're abandoned in, in terms of child raising and all that. So, all right, let's see here. Yeah, a lot of people are like, this woman is actually a man. This woman is actually a man. All right. We want truth, not chit-chat. Well, ask a damn question. (laughs) Nobody's stopping you from doing that. We need a truth about the fall of communists in Russia, Black October 1993. Well, you know, um, feel free to contact me, and if you've got uh, some... uh, um, If you have some, uh, some data, you know, some people have done 
presentations from me and they've been great and, and helpful and so on. And so stop asking me to do stuff and help me get it done. You know, you are, you are part of this conversation. I'm very happy to <laughs> to have that uh, occur. So uh, now, of course, if you don't want to do that, then you can understand why I have some concerns about your actual interest in the subject. You know, uh, let's see here. Do I have a P.O. box? I do have a P.O. box. Uh, it's 2233 Argentia Road, Suites 302 and 302A. Argentia is A-R-G-E-N-T-I-A. So 2233 Argentia Road, Suites 302 and, 3, 302 and 302A. Mississauga, M-I-S-S-I-S-S-A-U-G-A, Ontario, Canada, L5N2X7. So you can just um, rewind that if you want to hear about all of that. All right. I have talked impeachment. I'm sorry that you uh, you missed that. Uh, and yeah, if you want to send me a check, if you can make that out to Stefan Molyneux, I would appreciate that. What do I think about Mike Norton? I don't know. I don't know that name, I'm afraid. Uh, let's see here. Can you speak on Virginia? What are your thoughts on the Second Amendment crackdown? Oh, is that the mental health thing? Yeah, it's bad. It's bad because mental health is such a subjective thing. And um, I mean, there's extremes which are pretty clear and then there's a lot of subjective stuff and it is not uh, it is not good uh truth does owen hurt your feelings are you talking about owen benjamin owen benjamin does not hurt my, my feelings and i'm sure i don't hurt owen benjamin's feelings either i have no no particular bad blood i don't know much about what he's doing these days but anything like that so let's see here i'm going to just uh, do a couple more questions I just wanted to drop down and, and chat with you guys. Now, just tell me this, if you don't mind, uh, in, in the chat window here. Did uh, Do I want to do a show about the failed revolution in 1905 in Russia? If there's a philosophical angle, yes. Uh, I find myself little motivated by political topics at the moment. And uh, maybe I'm pacing myself for 2020. Who knows, right? But let's see here. Uh, what do I think about the Japanese? I'm really fascinated by Japan. I would love to go out and do a documentary on Japan. I, I think J the Japan and the Japanese people are really a, a fascinating group of individuals. And I, um, uh, I, I just think it's, uh, well, I'm sorry, just keep reusing the word fascinating, but I would love to go out to Japan and do a documentary and talk to them about their economics, their top-heavy population, the anime culture, this uh, dry fish ladies and the, the, the kids who aren't having kids and the fact that they have more diapers sold for elderly people than for young people and the massive amounts of debt and unfunded liabilities and their politicians who say, I can't believe these old people don't die and we're never going <laughs> to, right? So I would be fascinated to, to learn. And I just have to... Um, uh, I just have to find somebody who's going to help me out as far as that goes. So, All right. Uh, as someone who's recently taken an interest in literature, do you have any particular recommendations to start with? Well, I love the Russians, the 19th century Russians, and I guess some of the early 20th century stuff, just about the best writing on the planet, just about the best and most deep writing on the planet. So you can start with some Turgenev, you can do Chekhov. Um, a Cherry Orchard is fantastic. Turgenev's Fathers and Sons is great. Um, crime and punishment, I mean, goes goes without saying. I've never gotten that much into Tolstoy. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried, but I just, he, he really makes me dozy. Uh, there is some sense of life mismatch regarding that, but the Russians write about really important stuff, at least they used to, and um, 
it's it's really powerful and they come right up close to some of the most powerful philosophical concepts the brothers katamasov or katamasov is also really well worth reading although that's quite quite the book stop so you can start with that um some of the 19th century writers particularly in the uk are pretty good so mayor of casterbridge thomas hardy uh, are are good and Pamela by Richardson is well worth reading. Um, I mean, the mayor of mayor of Canterbury, America. Sorry, the, the Thomas Hardy one is is just fantastic. I actually converted that to a play as well, though I never did anything with it. But uh, it is um, you can start with that kind of stuff. Ayn Rand is a great writer to to read as far as that goes. So yeah, I would say um, hopefully those will be a first good places to good places to start. All right. Uh, prostitution is exploitation. It should be illegal. Exploitation is one of these subjective words that can't be morally defined in, in any rational way. Um, I enormously dislike prostitution. I mean, just straight up, enormously dislike prostitution. I've only known one fellow, well, two, but I'll only talk about one. I've only known one fellow who went to uh, a prostitute, and it was, uh, it, was a, it was a grim story, man. This is a guy... Uh, he was a bit of an odd fellow. His mother used to have like lingerie parties when he was a young man. I think he was in his like late in his early twenties. He'd be at home, and his mom would have like a lingerie party with all of her, and he would be kind of around. And it's just like that's not right. <laughs> it's so not right. And he ended up being so concerned about his virginity that he went to a a prostitute and he told me about this and i i mean it was appalling i mean i mean the, the he tried to kiss her and 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 she's like no no you're here for one thing i'm not your girlfriend you you can't come here for that right he's very sharp and so on it's like gosh that's that's I mean, the whole thing is nasty. Uh, the whole thing is, and, and of course, I mean, there's the pimp act aspects. There's the get the prostitutes addicted to drugs so you can control them. There's the burnout. There's the cracking of the pair bonding capacity. I mean, it really is ghastly all round. And when I was in, gosh, I shot a documentary when I was in the Netherlands to give a speech at the next web conference. And uh, my gosh, I mean, unfortunately, um, the guy ghosted me afterwards. So it was a pretty good documentary. But yeah, we went down to the red light district and I gave a whole speech about all of this sort of stuff. And uh, it probably will never, ever see the light of day, which is a shame. But yeah, I, I mean, illegal doesn't solve the problem, doesn't get rid of it. And so the way that you get rid of it is is peaceful parenting and all of that. So, all right. Let's see here. What else do we have here? How can we sever the ties between academics slash universities and the government? Well, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. I mean, there's the ideal situation and then there's the current situation. Now, as far as the value of a university education goes, there's a huge amount of propaganda. It comes from the mainstream media infested by leftists to the point where they drive young people into signing multi-year contracts that can destroy their capacity to start families for like 20 years with massive amounts of debt. And what is the actual value of these degrees? What is the economic value of these degrees? Well, it's an interesting question. Are they promising something that they can't provide? Is there false advertising? Is there a possibility of a class action suit for 
lying to kids about the value of the education? I don't know because I'm no lawyer or anything like that. But um, the best thing to do is just recognize, tell people, just tell people that with very, very few exceptions, academia has just become a self-flagellating farce and a self-brutalizing set of sadism principles, particularly applied if you're a, if you're a white male. So just try and keep people away from that horrible monster pit. So we can find Osama bin Laden, but not Ghislaine Maxwell. I think that's you. She said Gizel. I think you mean Ghislaine Maxwell. Yeah, of course. Well, um, they don't want to find <laughs> Miss Maxwell, right? So Because that's going to point to too many people in power. Let's see here. Um, I don't know much about the Georgia Guidestones. I've heard about it, but I've no, I don't really know. Where do you and uh, the objectivist part ways? I used to be under the impression that you were somewhat of an objectivist. Yeah, I mean, that I agree with the objectivists uh, and with Ayn Rand on metaphysics and to a large degree epistemology. Um, I part ways on ethics and I part ways on politics, although I didn't used to. With regards to ethics, Ayn Rand's basic formulation is that which is good for man is the good. And unfortunately, it's not true because there are some people, I mean, if you look at Barack Obama, you look at um, George Bush and so on, I mean, they've made fortunes, they're famous, they're giving speeches all over the world, they had massive amounts of power. And was is the state good for them? Sure. I mean, just at a material mammal reproduction level and and the dopamine hit of climbing the ladder of power, the state has been very good to those people. And so you could say, well, but, at, you know, at an existential level, it's bad for them and so on. It's like, well, that's not how they process it. The teacher that I started out talking about at the beginning of this show, she loved being a teacher. She loved not having to work too many hours a day. She loved being able to reuse lesson plans. She loved the time off in the summer. She loved not being able to be fired. She loved having a union who'd fight like to the death for her. She loved all that stuff. You say, well, but at some existential levels, like, yeah, well, but that's, you can't talk her into quitting, right? <laughs> so uh, that which is good for man, you could say collectively the free market is good for man, but mercantilism and, and capitalism, like crony capitalism, works really well for some people. Really, they make a fortune out of it. You say, ah, yes, but, you know, for mankind as a whole, it's like, yeah, but there is no, you, you can't look at in, uh, philosophy as individualistic as something like objectivism and then say, yes, but for mankind as a whole, it's like, but there is no mankind as a whole in an individualistic philosophy. Then you're starting to look into like world spirit and nation consciousness and, you know, social good and that's all garbage, right? So when you have a highly individualistic philosopher, philosophy, then you can't say, well, there's an abstract good for all mankind that's what virtue should serve. It has to serve each particular individual. And the wall I talked about earlier, the fiery moat of state power, serves people enormously well. They love it. And if you try and take it away from them, they will frack you up six waves from Sunday. They love it. Oh, well, they're addicted. It's like, yeah, well, you know, then you're just justifying things for the sake of it. So that's why I worked on a theory of ethics called universally preferable behavior that does not require any collective any, any appeals to any aggregate or collective good. And, of course, when it comes to um, politics, well, Ayn Rand was a minarchist, which is a government that focuses on the police, the military, the law courts, uh, maybe prisons and so on, and that's about it. And uh, that's not 
That's not principled. You know, like, I'm sorry, it's just not principled. And as Ayn Rand herself said, in any conflict between food and poison, it is only death that will win. And if you're not willing to go on principle, I mean, this is both my strength and my downfall in some ways, right? Which is that to me, there's, there's no point doing this damn show unless it's going to be based on some sort of principle. I don't want to just spout off opinions and, you know, use whatever eloquence I have to bedazzle people into whatever, right? And so I have to go on principle. Otherwise, there's no there's no point. There's no point to any of this. It just becomes like it's like a gig rather than a calling, rather than a, a focus on, on what is virtuous, what is good. And so the non-aggression principle is the non-aggression principle. Like, I'm sorry about the tautology, but thou shalt not initiate force. Well, if the government can initiate force to protect its monopoly on the police, the military, the law courts, and so on, maybe the prisons, then you've just violated principle. Okay, once you've violated principle, it's just a difference of degree then. And once you've, you know, it's like if you've got, if you go to these aquariums, you've got these big giant walls with these dancing belugas on the other side and weird fish that don't eat each other and sharks and all that kind of stuff. Well, if you crack a big hole at the bottom of that, or even if it's a little hole, eventually it's going to drain, right? That the, I mean, assuming that it doesn't totally balance on the other side or whatever, right? It's going to drain the water out, assuming it can all run down the stairs or something like that. It doesn't sort of balance up on the other side, but you, you crack that hole in the bottom, the water runs out. Now, if you crack it small, it runs out slowly. If you crack it big, it runs out quickly, but it's going to run out. And that, to me, that's principle. Like, you don't crack the principle. You don't crack the principle. Otherwise, what's the point? What's the point? Why, why take any risks? Why say any of this stuff if I'm not going to stand on principle? So I stand on principle. And when you allow for the existence of a state, you have violated the non-aggression principle. So what's the point? Otherwise, so. Anyway, I'm a few chapters into the Gulag archipelago. I can't understand the level of cruelty. Can you explain it beyond it just being socialism? Well, that's a big, uh, that is one big-ass question, my friend. It's one big-ass question. So when you're a sadist. Okay, this is going to get kind of dark, so I'm, I don't want to give you like trigger warnings because it's this show, but this is going to get kind of dark. When you're a sadist, you're punishing people. And what are you punishing them for? You're punishing them for betraying you as a child. So let's say that you're raised in a family and you're beaten bloody and senseless. Maybe you're raped, you're tortured. I mean, people do the most ungodly things to children that you can imagine. And you you go feral, right? It's fight or flight. Your cortisol burns out, your conscience, your adrenaline burns out, your empathy. And you hate your society and you hate the world. Not because you were abandoned, not because you were abused, not because you were neglected, not because you were tortured or raped. You You hate the world because the world claims to care for children, and the world, in your perception, and to some degree in reality, at least in a local sense, the world knew you were being abused and did nothing. Now, if you have been abused, you know, you need to know this about yourself, and and if you've witnessed it, you need to know this about yourself too. 
And if you're neither of those things, you need to know about this. Everybody needs to know about this. That's my point. So when we claim to have virtues and we act in the opposite, people grow up to hate the virtue signalers. And then the people say, well, we care about children. We love children. Children are the future and, and so on, right? And we hate abuse and anybody who abuses is terrible and this woman got abused and we need to help her and care for her and protect her and so on, right? So then if you're abused as a child, you want people to notice and to do something about it, but they don't. They cover it up, they bury it, they ignore it. Or if you're a child and you bring it up in even a tangential way, which is probably all you're willing to do, they will shush you up pretty quickly. You will provoke massive back tsunami ripples of discontent, frustration, and silencing if you even begin to breathe the word of the fact that you're abused as a child, for the most part, which is the only way. See, the, it's the only way that the abusers can continue is that none of the other adults will call them on it. None of the other adults will sit down and say, hey, man, I heard this really disturbing story from Johnny. You better sit down right with me here, and we're going to work through this, and we're going to figure out what the hell's going on because I won't stand for this. Like, this is not how we're going to have children treated in this family or anywhere for that matter. So the abusers against the children operate in a society-wide collusion and enablement that is the only thing that allows them to continue to abuse the children. Everybody sees, everybody knows, everybody hears, everybody understands, everybody sees the bruises, they hear the smacks, they see the cries, they see the depression, they see the anxiety, they see all of it. And they do, and they say nothing. They do and they say Nothing. The only time they rouse themselves to action is if the child is beginning to talk about being abused. Then, by then, people leap into action to do what? To silence the children. Because the children can't do them any harm, but the abuser could. The abuser could lie about them. The abuser could get them fired. The abuser could complain about them to some, someone who has power over them. Right? But the children can't do anything. So to hell with the kids, right? Should get the kids to shut up. I don't have to confront an abuser. Because abuser can be dangerous. Kids, to hell with them, right? Oh, but we love the children. We care about the children. The children of the future. Right? So when you go through that experience, you grow up with a lot of hatred and contempt for your society. And if you're tortured, brutalized, raped, assaulted, beaten as a child, and you know deep down that the only possible reason that your abuser is able to get away with such behavior is because everybody else covers for them, supports it, allows it, tacitly encourages it by silence, and only turns around with moral fire and vengeance if the child says anything, and then they punish the child. So you grow up with a lot of anger towards your society. A lot of anger towards your society. Then if you put in a position of power, well, you torture back. You control back. You humiliate back. An eye for an eye. You all stood by while I was being abused. Now I'm in a position of power. Welcome to Paybackville. Welcome to Blowback. I think that's how it works myself. 
just a theory. Ah, let's see here. Law of attraction. Law of attraction. Oh, I've talked about this a million times before. Law of attraction is just pee- pity people pretending that they're not pretty. Oh, people are just wonderful for you if you just want things. Blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah, they're just pretty people. Right. Steph, we need the truth about stem cells. You've interviewed Robert Whitaker. Please watch Dr. Neil Riordan and Mel Gibson on Joe Rogan's show. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, you see, the truth about stem cells, though, I mean, I'm not a scientist, right? I mean, I'm really trying to stay on the philosophical side of things. All right, what have we got here? Everything you complain about very obviously stems from the 19th Amendment. Be a man like your friend JLP. Uh, I think I know who that is. And speak about the only solution that is humane. Repeal 19th or else suffer. But there are lots of great women out there in the world and lots of stupid male socialists. So, And, and how are you going to... I mean, if you, even if you thought it was right. I don't think it's right. But how are you going to do it? You get women going to vote to take away their own rights? Anyway. All right. Um, all right. Sorry. This is all. I'm just, let me just get through here. If you need a philosophical truth for uh, angle for a truth about communism vid, you could do a modern parallels relative to China and the socialists in the U.S. like you did for the fall of Rome. Yeah, send it to me in an email. I don't quite get it, but you know, could could I'm sure I'm just missing something. So please, uh, please let me know. All right. Are you expecting to be away from yourself? Oh, yeah. I have no interest in becoming a martyr. Of course not, right? What do you think about creating a Galt's Gulch and Cap society? I mean, a number of people have tried it. I don't know what. I know what's happened with one or two of them, which has been not good, and other ones, I don't know. So the problem is you've got to find a piece of land and you've got to get permission from the government that's there to have your own kind of society. And, you know, it's really, it would be, it'd be great. We could have done it through space travel, but instead we decided to uh, get migrants instead. So, all right. Mm-hmm. But Steph, I grew up around a kid down the street who loved to catch birds and squirrels and vivisect them. That's carved them up for supposedly research purposes. Some people are born messed up. Well, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know that uh, he was born messed up? How do you know what happened to that kid when he was young? So, you don't. You don't. But it's interesting that you would feel the need for that, right? Stefan, what's your opinion on how humans could face the subject of overpopulation in an ethical and responsible way? Well, um, overpopulation is a myth as a whole. And if you are concerned about overpopulation, then you need to look at Africa, you need to look at the Middle East, you need to look at migrant populations and, and so on, where they're having lots of kids and so on. So if you're not talking about overpopulation in um, Urdu or uh, um, gosh, Arabic, or I mean, then, I, you know, that's just anti-white stuff, right? So overpopulation is not an issue. Um, certain countries, of course, that we all know about are below replacement levels and so on. So no, overpopulation is not a problem. The subject of overpopulation, well, human beings respond to incentives. So if you give, you know, poor countries masses of foreign aid, they're going to have a whole bunch of kids. Why? Because the way that you control your population, right, the best contraception is industrialization. The way that you control, not control like politically, but the way that you control reproduction is 
you gain a free market. Now, once you gain a free market, you gain wealth. Once you have wealth, you need fewer kids to support you in your old age. You might you can save for your own pension. So women want to go out and work. So you have fewer kids after you have the free market. But if you give the proceeds of the free market, i.e. massive amounts of wealth, without the country going through the process of developing the virtues and values of the free market, then you're simply paying for massive amounts of kids, right? And you see the foreign aid being dumped into Africa. There are places in Africa with having six kids per woman. <laughs> well, that's not good, and that's not going to last, right? So you want to encourage free market principles. You want to have charity in a limited way for the for those absolutely needing it, not overseas. That's something that I mean, can certainly be handled by private charities, nothing to do with government, right? But you promote the virtues and values of the free market, and then as countries begin to adopt the principles of the free market, the birth rate will inevitably go down. So whatever the problem is, I got a great answer for you. Um, it is uh, um, freedom. Whatever the question is, the answer is more freedom. All right, one or two more? One or two more. Let's see here. Uh, Trump was impeached. Yeah, no, absolutely. It is... Uh, uh, sing us a song, Stefan, for goodness sake. You're a very good singer. Merry musical. It's Christmas time. You sang us some Queen before. That's a nice idea. I, I like that. I like that. All right. I never watched the Twin Peaks series, but I heard it was kind of freaky and kind of weird. About a boot. There you go. <laughs> That's what he wanted. Okay, so um, everyone's telling me that Trump's been impeached. Clinton is saying he's been arrested and is being questioned, so it sounds like fake news to me, but... I will certainly uh, go go and have a look. And so um, I want to say thanks, everyone, so much. And wonderful to chat with you guys this evening. Thank you for jumping in. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter to get more of these kinds of live streams. What happened to the Super, super Chat option? Well, I've been demonetized. So <laughs> freedomain.com forward slash donate. Thank you so much, everyone. Have yourself a wonderful, wonderful evening. I love you guys to death. Thank you for giving me the honor and the privilege of being able to do what it is that I do. I am enormously, enormously grateful for that. And um, I hope that you guys will yourselves have an absolutely wonderful evening. Look at me gracefully trying to find my way into um, having a, uh, a soft landing to it. Is this happening? Can I turn it off here? Or do I just turn it off on my side? It's been a while and they keep changing it. Oh, there we go. So, um, yeah, love you guys. Let me know what you think of more. And uh, nice to see you, Got We've got uh, quite a lot of people coming in tonight. And um, have yourself a wonderful evening. I'll talk to you soon.